the uh, the passage. Uh, Jim's gone this weekend, so we actually have Don Payne coming up and teaching uh, today. He works down at Denver Seminary, and uh, I unfortunately was never able to take a class from him. I know I it's a severe loss on on my part for that. Um, but he's uh, going to be working from a passage out of Colossians chapter one, uh, verses nine to fourteen which reads as follows. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for Don and uh, his uh, willingness to come up here. We pray for open ears, Father, to hear what he has to say. And uh, we just ask that uh, you would speak through him, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. Thanks, Rob. And good morning, everybody. It's been my privilege to come up every every uh, so often, once or twice every year for the last few years and speak with you. And uh, what I miss is seeing many of your faces uh, in real time, face-to-face, greeting familiar friends. And so I hope you're all doing well. Obviously, we uh, we all live in a world that is very different from anything any of us could have imagined even five months ago. And today, we live in a world, at least in this country, that's very different from what it was a week ago. Uh, because the, uh, the, many of the fears that uh, plague those around the world about our jobs and our health, our economy, our, our finances, our futures... Our retirement, many of those fears have now boiled over into a very divisive situation in our nation with uh, this past Monday's uh, tragic and travesty of the, uh, the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And so from major city to major city around our country, we now see our world just all literally and figuratively catching on fire. Now, there's been lots of rhetoric over these last five months about uh, how we're going to get through this and how we're going to get through all this together. But now we have a new question that's been added to the question of how we're going to get through it. And that new question is, is really, who must we be in all of this? And 
obviously many people around, um, at least around this country, and I suppose around the world in general, have turned to religion or turned to spirituality. Uh, some maybe even in, in an overt sense have turned to God, whatever they mean by that. And, and in some respects, we have to think that's a good thing. But I'm also convinced that that can be part of the problem. It can be part of the problem because there are ways of turning to God, ways of turning to religion, ways of turning to spirituality that can cause us to detach from the problems around us, cause us to hole up, cause us to withdraw, cause us to privatize our faith. There are ways of turning to God, ways of turning to spirituality uh, that are, are actually divisive. Ways of turning to spirituality and turning to God that are not redemptive, they're not constructive. And so it's, it's really crucial for all of us, and especially for those of us who call ourselves Christians, to, um, to understand who God really is and what it really means to know God. Because we can't simply paste the word or paste the label God over anything that anybody would call religion or anything that we would call spirituality. It's crucial, and we can never take it for granted, that turning to God or turning to spirituality is going to be turning to the God who really makes a difference in the world, who really works redemptively and constructively in the world. And really, it's always been that way. Uh, even as far back as the first century, which we're going to look at a little bit this morning, um, we, we find that very same kind of situation at play. The Apostle Paul wrote this, uh, this letter to this ancient city, a, a rather small town called Colossae, which was a, a, a kind of a remote town in what was known as the Lycos Valley of what is modern-day Turkey. And in some ways, it was a beautiful place. There were mountains in the distance, and uh, probably by the standards of that time, maybe a, a great place to live. The Apostle Paul had never been to the city of Colossae, but a friend of his named Epaphras had taken the gospel, that is the good news of the, of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Epaphras had taken that message to this little remote city of Colossae. And Paul had gotten the reports of, of what they were doing and how, um, how God had, had really transformed many of their lives. But along the way, even though many of these folks had gotten off to a really good start in their faith, uh, their, their trust in Jesus Christ, they, they, many of them were starting to get, in a sense, kind of derailed or enchanted with some alternative uh, ways of relating to God that seemed really on point, but ultimately were dead-end streets. And as best we can tell historically, that this, um, this alternative type of spirituality that was really uh, capturing their attention was some kind of a strange mixture of, of self-improvement rituals with a sort of detached inner mysticism. Uh, and we face those same kinds of temptations today in lots and lots of ways. Uh, ways of relating to God, uh, spiritualities, versions of religion that, that look really pious. They look really godly. They look uh, like they're going to improve our lives, but actually they, they divide people. Um, they're, they're not constructive. They erode community. And, and they even become very useless because they cause us to withdraw. They cause us to turn inward into a, a sort of mystical, uh, self-serving piety. Uh, 
And in those, those kinds of spirituality, God is always remote. If we think about it in today's standards, God is the one with the mask on. Uh, I don't know if you feel as oddly as I do when I interact with uh, people out in public with all of us are having our masks on, but it's, it's really a strange phenomenon, isn't it, when, when you're trying to talk to somebody, especially if they also have sunglasses on, and you cannot see the most expressive parts of their face. You, you know there's a person behind there somewhere, but you really don't know who that is, and yet you have to relate to them. And what we want to look at this morning is that what does it mean to relate to God without a mask, without God having a mask on? Because many of these alternative and even uh, captivating or engaging, enchanting spiritualities always treated God as if God were remote, God had the mask on. And these are spiritualities that no matter how interesting they may have been, they do not do any good. They don't redeem and they don't make any kind of constructive contribution to the world, even if they make people feel better about themselves. Now, Paul, in this uh, brief portion of the letter, this uh, latter part of, or this middle part of the first chapter of Colossians, uh, Paul starts out by, by affirming how well these Christians started off in the faith. Uh, he, he mentions that it was obvious to him from the reports he had gotten back that that they knew the grace of God. They had genuinely experienced God's grace transforming their lives. And that, that they, were, they were fruitful in their service to others. They, they were making a difference. They were doing good. But what Paul also recognized at the beginning of this prayer that he prays for them is that they still faced risks. They still needed to grow. Because he starts out in verse 9 with this simple phrase, for this reason, and this reason being the reality of the gospel and the results of the gospel that he had already heard about in their lives. They were clear, but that gospel that had gotten such a good start in their lives was not yet finished in their lives. In other words, they were still somewhat susceptible to, um, to, to getting derailed. They were still somewhat susceptible to getting into spiritual rabbit holes, to chasing things that really didn't do anything, did, really didn't make any difference, that, that tore community apart, and that ultimately sort of clogged their spiritual arteries. They were still susceptible to that. And that's why Paul says that for this reason, that is, because you started well, I want you to continue to grow. He says, I constantly pray that God will fill you with the knowledge of his will, the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul says to them that what they needed was a, a constantly deepening knowledge of God, but he uses a word for knowledge that's a very particular word. It's a word that in the Greek language speaks about a sort of personal knowledge, an experiential knowledge, a knowledge that we might compare to a skill that we would acquire by doing something. We don't merely know about it. We've not merely read about it. We don't merely have concepts in our minds. But we know it because we're engaged with it. We know it because we relate to it. We know it because we can do something with it. And that's the type of knowledge that Paul contrasts to the knowledge that was really enchanting them and really vying for their affections which was a sort of abstract knowledge. It was esoteric knowledge. It was knowledge that, that catered to people's desires to be an insider or to have a mystical experience. Paul says, I want you, and I pray that God will continually help you grow 
in this kind of knowledge that's experiential, that's practical, that's personal with God, not in this abstract, mystical, merely conceptual knowledge. I want you to know, Paul says, God's, God's will. Now, by God's will, he's not, he's not talking about the specifics of what kind of um, uh, house they might live in or whom they might marry. He's not talking about God's will in that sense that sometimes Christians these days will talk about God's will. But he's talking about merely how life is to be lived according to the way God designed life to be lived. Um, and, and that's why he also includes the word wisdom. Because what he wants them to know is that to know the true and living God is to be able to live in a practical way. It's to be able to work out our knowledge of God in the kinds of situations maybe that are most difficult. For example, to, to know the wisdom and the will of God, to know God in this kind of experiential and personal way is the kind of knowledge of God, the kind of wisdom from God we need to have a difficult relationship, to love well, even when uh, we're at risk maybe of, of losing our sense of who we are. We need God's wisdom to work out God's will in that kind of way. We need that kind of divine wisdom to work out God's way of life when we're trying to work for justice, uh, especially those of us who are more privileged and, and can feel helpless not knowing what to do, or feeling like perhaps it's not our problem. That's where we need the wisdom to work out the will of God, knowing what it means to relate to God. We need to work that out, God's wisdom to work that out, in situations where justice is so complex and maybe so inaccessible to us, or it seems that way that we don't know what to do. That's what it means, that's part of what it means to know God. That's what Paul wanted for these Colossian Christians in the late first century. Uh, people who were, who were uh, sort of allured by an option presented to them of knowing God in a real mystical, abstract, or insider way, but a way that ultimately didn't make any difference in the world. It didn't change their lives. J.I. Packer, who's a sort of well-known theologian, uh, talks about four characteristics of people who know God. Packer says that those who know God have great energy for God. Those who know God have great thoughts of God. We know that God is, in fact, sovereign over all. Those who know God, Packer says, have great boldness for God. We're, we're able to take risks. We're able to get engaged. We don't just stay safe and secure and sequestered behind our faith. And then finally, Packer says, those who know God have great contentment in God. That is, even in the middle of turmoil, even in the middle of fears, and even in the middle of uncertainty, even in the middle of violence and divisiveness, we're able to be engaged, and we're, see we we're able to seek God's wisdom for how to be engaged and still be content in God. That's, that's knowledge of God, friends, that actually makes a difference in the world. It makes a difference in our lives. And if you look in verse 10 in this text, Paul goes on to press the case a little bit deeper, press it a little bit further, and he talks about, or he describes, the type of difference it makes. He says, if you know God with this type of wisdom, and, you're, and God has filled you with the knowledge of his will in, in these ways, here's what happens. You're going to live a life that's worthy of the Lord. Now, I need to explain what Paul means and doesn't mean when he uses that terminology, because sometimes people will use... Um, even 
biblical language to make people feel less, to make people feel small, to make people feel unworthy. Uh, It's not that we're having to kind of clamor our way or earn our way to prove to God that we're worthy. We're worthy intrinsically because God has created us in God's own image. That's not what Paul's talking about. But when Paul says, if you know the wisdom and the will of God this way, personally, experientially, you're going to live a life worthy of the Lord, meaning your life's going to have integrity to it. There's going to be an integration or an integrity between the way your life works its way out and who God is and what God values. There's going to be that wholeness, that integrity to your life. And then he says also, you're going to please the Lord in every respect. Now again, we've got to qualify this because to please God in every way does not mean that God is like um, kind of a a stern and uh, always unhappy parent who can never be made happy by anything we do. And, and some of you, I imagine, um, maybe carry some of that baggage from a, a parent who never could be pleased. And you're always trying to struggle and find a way to make the parent happy. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about pleasing the Lord in the sense that our lives have harmony to them. It's a pl- our lives are like a pleasing sound. When you hear a good band and they harmonize well, that's pleasing to the ear. There's something uh, about a, what, what good musicians like these, these folks can do that just uh, makes everything inside of us feel like it fits together. There's harmony to it. And to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord in every way means that our lives are in harmony with the melody that God sings, so to speak. And thirdly, Paul says that if, if you know God in this type of way, if God has, is filling you with, uh, with knowledge of who God is and all wisdom and knowing what God's will is, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be fruitful in all the good that you do. Your life is going to be fruitful. Now, springtime is just uh, starting to roll in, and so those who are gardeners, like my wife who's sitting in front of me now, uh, are, are in their heyday, right? Because finally things are starting to grow. But if you're in uh, Colorado here, you know it's not easy to make things grow. Our soil is not always very friendly to making things grow. So a week ago, I had to get out our tiller and till our garden so my wife Sharon could plant the garden. And man, that's tough work because you've got to put a lot of stuff in the dirt here. You've got to do a lot of stuff to it to make it grow. You've got about a lot of things in it. And then once things start to grow, in order for them to bear fruit, uh, you have to, uh, what she calls, deadhead or sucker all these plants. And she is an obsessive plant deadheader. She never sees a plant anywhere, even if it's around a business. Just any, any plant that she walks by, even if it doesn't belong to her, she's got her fingers in it, picking the deadheads off of it. And what does that do? Well, you deadhead, you sucker those plants, and that lets all the nutrients go into the fruit, not just into the, the vines. Okay? And that's what happens when we are filled and increasingly filled with the practical, personal, experiential knowledge of God and God's will that all the good we do actually is, does, it doesn't end up in a dead-end street, but it does something. It makes a difference. We bear fruit. Um, I grew up in the uh, kind of the barren oil fields of West Texas, which some of you can probably hear in my accent. 
but if you think Colorado soil is a difficult place to make things grow, uh, that is exponentially more difficult. Uh, there's about only two things that really grow and thrive in those barren oil fields, uh, cactus and mesquite. And the only things that will grow and thrive there are things that know how to find water and things that know how to hold water. And if, you've, uh, if you know anything about mesquite trees, you know, they're not very tall. They're not much to look at above the ground. But uh, proportionately, mesquite trees have probably the longest taproot of any tree on the earth. They're able to drill down through soil that's almost like concrete and find water. That's one of the reasons in West Texas they so often struggle with drought because the mesquite forests compromise the water table. But those things can grow anywhere because they can drill down and find water. And you take a cactus, that thing knows how to hold water. And as gnarly and prickly as those things are, if you get caught out in that desert and run out of water, a cactus can save your life because it holds the water. And those are metaphors for uh, how the knowledge of God that Paul is talking about really comes into our lives so that we bear fruit, particularly, particularly in the most difficult, challenging situations. This kind of knowledge of God is not a knowledge of God that's, that's just here to make us, uh, to kind of satisfy our, our spiritual itches, make us feel good about ourselves. It's not there just as a self-improvement technique. This is the knowledge of God, the real, genuine knowledge of God. Knowledge of God without a mask on, personal knowledge of God that nourishes our lives and allows our lives to bear fruit even in the most barren circumstances, even in the most hostile circumstances, even in the most uncongenial circumstances. And that's why Paul goes on then to talk about God giving us strength, God giving us power to live out God's wisdom and God's will. And that type of strength, that type of power is not just native willpower. It's not suck it up strength. Uh, It's not the kind of um, uh, what we would call hubris or prideful power that makes us uh, want to accomplish things just out of ego strength. This is a power that comes from God, and we know it comes from God because of the shape it takes. When this power comes into our lives and comes through our lives, Paul says it results in endurance. That is, we're able to hang in there when it gets tough and when, um, when maybe our, our faith in God isn't just pleasing us all the time. But we have endurance. We have endurance. We have patience. And Paul says we joyfully give thanks to God. Our our lives are marked by joyful gratitude. And that's a type of power. That's a type of strength that is very unusual. We can find lots of people who will will kind of suck it up and can pull on some of those natural resources that that God has planted in all people to get through difficult situations, to overcome incredible obstacles. But they do not always do so with the kind of fruitful, joyful, grateful spirit that the Lord promises us. And to grow stronger in this way, to experience God's strength in this way, is like a tree trunk. It's like becoming uh, that tree trunk that has more and more rings to it, more and more layers to it, and still is a living thing that can bend and withstand the most intense crosswinds without breaking. It makes us more like that type of a tree trunk than like a petrified rock. That's the type of strength the Lord gives us. Not that crusty, prickly strength, 
but that strength that's a living thing, a, thing, a strength that's life-giving to others. And the final question that Paul kind of leans into is, how, how is all this possible? How is all of this knowledge of God not just another version of, of self-improvement or just another religious experience? How's that possible? Well, he answers that question in verses 13 and 14, where he speaks to the fact that God has acted on our behalf. He says that in Jesus Christ, we have been given redemption. We have been given forgiveness. And Paul, in that simple statement, takes us back to the very core of our lives. We can only know God in a, in a genuinely redemptive, personal, experiential, life-giving way and fruitful way because God has first taken a step toward us and has acted definitively, has acted decisively on our behalf to get to the core of who we are. That's where those words forgiveness and redemption come into play. Because for God, through Jesus Christ, to forgive us is a direct statement that we need to be forgiven. Now that may be obvious, that may be easy to accept for some, that may be very difficult to accept for others, especially for those who are well-socialized people and tend to be liked by their neighbors and tend to do a lot of good things and tend to be viewed as, as really great people. Forgiven? Uh, maybe I'd mess up now and then, but do I really need to be forgiven? Paul's assurance to every one of us is that regardless of how well-socialized we are, regardless of how, how, how well-liked we are, Regardless of all the other good we might do, every one of us need to be forgiven. Because every one of us stand in a posture that's alienated from God unless God bridges that gap. Unless God extends forgiveness. The other word Paul uses is redemption. And redemption uh, is, is a word that uh, speaks of somebody being released or being bought back from, from captivity, from enslavement. And Again, if you especially are in a well-resourced or more powerful position in life, you may not view yourself as being enslaved or being a captive. But that's where the true knowledge of God shows us who we really are, that every one of us are enslaved to our own fallenness, to our own sinfulness. We're captive in ways. We have chains around us we can't even see unless God sets us free. That's at the core of who we are. And that core is not always obvious to us. God has to show us that. But we don't live free lives. We don't live, uh, we, we don't actually have life in the way that God intended us to have life unless God forgives us and God redeems us. God delivers us from captivity. God sets us free. That's the definitive and decisive act that God has done on our behalf. God may, has made that first move toward us. And it's because of that because God has redeemed us. We can't redeem ourselves, but because God has redeemed us, then we can know God in a way that's going to be life-giving. It's going to be constructive. It's going to be redemptive in the situations where God calls us. And that type of faith, that type of spirituality, that knowledge of God is the benchmark. That's the baseline. That's the acid test for all spiritualities. Many people are turning to God during this current crisis, this world crisis. Um, but to turn to God, to turn to spirituality, is not necessarily to know the true and living God. That's what Paul wants us to know. 
And to Christians, Paul says to those of us who've already known the grace of God, who've already met God through Jesus, he says, stay on that path and keep drilling into that. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get derailed by spiritualities that might make about yourself, by spiritualities that, uh, that, that might really actually insulate you from the, uh, from the turmoil in the world. Those are not genuine knowledge of God. Paul says, I want you to grow in the genuine knowledge of God that's personal, that's practical, it's experiential, that helps you live out redemption in a world that's very hostile to that. Helps you live out redemption in a world that you want to retreat from. Helps you live out redemption in a world that's risky. Helps you live out redemption in a world where you you may not know what to do. And you need the wisdom of God, the courage of God, the goodness and the graciousness of God to go in there and hang in there and be a redemptive influence there. So how does this prayer become a reality in our lives? How does that happen? Well, it happens really as we continue to revisit this prayer. We continue to rehearse this prayer. It happens as we continue to pray this prayer for ourselves and to pray this prayer for each other. And it happens as we make the the markers of true knowledge of God, Paul outlines our practices. We commit ourselves to them. And that's, that's what's going to get us through, but not just get us through by returning us to previous normalcy. That's what's going to get us through and make us different. Some people have said that no good crisis should be wasted on us. And our whole world's in a crisis. And our nation right now is in a crisis. And the kind of knowledge of God that Paul prays for these first century believers, and that by extension he would pray for every one of us, and we should be praying for each other, that type of knowledge of God is the kind of knowledge of God that will not just help us get through, but that will make us different people. It'll help this crisis not be wasted on us. And as we look around at our world we can be tempted to feel very powerless. We, even as Christians, can be tempted to use our Christian faith to insulate ourselves from the turmoil around us, to, to withdraw, to, with, to retreat, to privatize our faith. But Paul kind of pushes into our face in a very gentle, in a loving way. He shows us that growing in true knowledge of God will always change us. Growing in true knowledge of God will give us what we need to move into messes to be agents of justice in a world where injustice is becoming the norm. It's going to give us the kind of knowledge of God we need to be joyful and content even if we do not know what our future holds. That's the kind of knowledge of God Paul prays for. It's what he wanted for us. It's what we can pray for ourselves and for each other. That's what I pray for you. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father... We're grateful that you have taken that first and decisive and life-changing move, that step toward us in and through Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for our sins, for our forgiveness, for our redemption. And we pray, Lord, you would keep in front of us, not out of our vision, but keep in our vision the kind of difficulties, the kind of injustices, the kind of brokenness that you want us to step into. And give us the courage and the faith based on true, practical, personal knowledge of you and your goodness and your love and your abounding grace 
that we can do that with gratitude, do that with endurance, do that with patience, and do that with joy. All these things we pray, as we pray for the many in our world who are broken, the many in our world who are doing without, the many in our world who are more uncertain than perhaps we are, and the many in our world who are on the short end of of injustice. Lord, we pray for them and we pray for ourselves that your glory would be known in the world, in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks for joining us, friends, and I think I'm supposed to remind you to the union and enjoy that very tactile way of engaging with our Lord Jesus Christ. Have a great week.